Hello, and welcome back to Newfound Pod, a bite-sized podcast about Newfoundland. I'm your host, Debbie Wiseman. This is Episode 9, Haunted Newfoundland, Part 3. In this third episode of my Halloween series, I'm going to share a few stories from Newfoundland folklorist Dale Jarvis. If you can't tell, my allergies are really kicking my butt, and they have been for a while. I won't subject you to my scratchy voice too much, so Dale's going to step in. I have three stories for you today. The first is The White Horse from Dale's book Haunted Waters. The second is The Whistling Ghost of Labrador. And the third is the story of Patty Mahoney, both from his book Haunted Shores. All Dale's books are available at Flanker Press or at Amazon. And of course, I'll have those links on the blog. In 1928, an author by the name of Charles Jameson wrote up some of his memories from the community of Proctor's Cove, Newfoundland, and saw his reminiscences printed in the Newfoundland Quarterly. At the time he wrote the article, Jameson said that Proctor's Cove was practically forgotten, and that its heyday had come and gone 30 years earlier. Proctor's Cove, Placentia Bay, had been primarily associated with the herring fishery. Like nearby Sound Island, the island settlement was also associated with some eerie tales. There is, perhaps, no place on earth that offers such a wealth of strange, weird stories as these little half-forgotten hamlets, wrote Jameson. One of these strange, weird stories involves a fisherman by the name of Albert who had an encounter with a ghostly white horse. One summer evening, Albert sat at his kitchen table reading a sermon book, preparing himself for the reading he was going to do in church that Sunday. His family had all gone to sleep. As he closed the book, he thought he would go outdoors and see if the skies held any clues as to what the weather would be like the following morning. Behind his house, a steep hill stretched out grass-covered, with here and there a large boulder jutting out. As he looked, a strange white horse trotted past his astonished eyes, and with flowing white tail and mane passed out of sight around a little headland. Albert was amazed at the sudden appearance of the horse, for he well knew that no such beast lived on the island. The sight, it was said, absolutely staggered him. He went back inside and went to bed, deeply troubled by the apparition. The next day, Albert got into his punt and rode out to his fishing grounds. As he busied himself with his usual work, an odd feeling came over him. A strange foreboding of impending evil hung over him and seemed to almost paralyze his limbs. When the feeling passed, Albert rode back to Proctor's Cove and was greeted with sad news. One of his children, a young boy, had fallen off the wharf and had drowned. The unfortunate lad's lifeless body was found a few hours later close to the location where he had taken his fateful tumble. It was whispered, after the boy's death, that the strange white horse had been a token of impending disaster. This belief in a white horse representing bad luck or death is part of an ancient tradition, possibly dating back to pre-Christian times. Part of this belief can be seen in the Book of Revelations, and I looked and beheld a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death. A woman from Torbay once told me that it was very bad luck for a pregnant woman to see a white horse for fear of problems with her pregnancy. And according to the Castle Dictionary of Superstitions, 
white horses are often thought to be harbingers of ill fortune. Apparently, this is particularly true if they are ridden by a red-headed girl. If you see a pale horse with a red-headed rider, the traditional charm against such bad luck is to immediately spit on the ground. Just hope your mother isn't watching. I'm folklorist and storyteller Dale Jarvis. In 1998, a man, his wife, and infant daughter moved to Cartwright, Labrador, said he might take up employment there. The family lived in the old staff house on what is known as the Grenfell Grounds. On different occasions, the house had served as a clinic and temporary hospital, and as time passed, the family began to learn of unusual occurrences that had happened there in the past. The wife's mother, who was visiting with the family for a while, would always go down in the basement to smoke. She would sit on a bench almost opposite the furnace room doorway and told her daughter and son-in-law that more than once she experienced a very peculiar sensation. She said that this caused her to feel very uneasy about the dark entrance to the furnace room. The laundry room was also on that level, and after dark, when someone had to go down there to get laundry, they could never shake the feeling that they were not alone, particularly when ascending the dimly lit, steep staircase. The husband always felt that someone was right behind him, and he would constantly look behind himself as he went up. One evening, the couple were feeding their daughter. The three of them were alone in the house. As they were feeding her, the father began to whistle a song to the girl. But when he stopped whistling, the whistling continued for a very short time from somewhere else in the house. Both the wife and the husband clearly heard this, and there was no mistaking the sound. While no fully satisfactory explanation for the ghost on the Grenfell grounds has ever been found, it may have something to do with a tragic death at the Grenfell Mission Boarding School property in the 1930s. The boarding school building had been erected to care for 60 people, including the staff, a large group of children, and the hospital patients. In June of 1934, the mission was struck by a major disaster. A fire erupted in the building, and the entire structure was quickly destroyed, leaving only the foundations and the chimney behind. That October, Dr. Richard Light wrote up his impressions of Cartwright for the New England Journal of Medicine. He noted that one of the sad results of the mission fire was the death of a patient. The patient was a girl of 17 who had been in the recovery stages of scarlet fever. Dr. Light wrote that her remains were discovered some weeks later and the funeral arranged. The Grenfell doctor was requested to serve as pallbearer. He marched at the head of the procession, bearing in his hands a small box containing the few bones recovered. Behind him, in slow procession, filed Cartwright's 72 inhabitants, all except one man who remained to toll the bell over the silent marchers until the ceremony was ended. The funeral was presided over by an elderly judge by the name of Murphy, who read several Bible passages while the coffin was lowered into its resting place. Dr. Light recorded that it poured rain that day, and the burial plot was filled with water before the interment was completed. The Grenfell grounds in Cartwright saw many a death from disease and injury over the years, but it is hard to imagine a more tragic death or sadder funeral than that of the girl who perished in the flames of 1934. Perhaps her spirit is the one that lingers, haunting the living with a strange whistling from beyond the grave. One of Newfoundland's more intriguing figures of the late 19th century was the Most Reverend Michael Francis Howley. When he wasn't busy acting as Archbishop, 
Howley found time to design the city's coat of arms, write countless letters to the English, Canadian, and Newfoundland press, act as an authority on the controversy of Cabot's landfall, restore and beautify the basilica, compose poetry and operettas, and design the Belvedere Orphanage building. He was something of a Renaissance man. Howley also had a great interest in the folklore of Newfoundland. For ten years he contributed to the Newfoundland Quarterly, a series of articles on the place names and legends of the island. In December of 1909, Howley included in his regular Newfoundland Quarterly article a tantalizing story about a place called Horse's Head and an ill-fortuned man named Paddy Mahoney. Horse's Head was so named for a remarkable rock which had the appearance of a horse's head. The rock is to be found on Little Colonnet Island, which together with its bigger brother Great Colonnet Island is situated in the middle of St. Mary's Bay. While he was able to give a fairly certain explanation for the name of Horse's Head, the Most Reverend was less certain about the name Colonnet. Howley speculated that local people had derived this name from the word Colonel. Later researchers, however, argue that the name Colonnet is both the French family name and a place name, Colonnet, in the Channel Islands. Horse's Head was inhabited by the aforementioned Paddy Mahoney, who dwelt in what Howley referred to as a solitary hut. Somehow, and Howley is very vague on this point, it was revealed to the lucky Paddy that a great treasure was to be found in a certain place near Horse's Head. Paddy lost no time, and set out with a shovel in hand in search of the buried treasure. As the digging promised to be long, lonely work, the recluse took his daughter with him for company. When Paddy reached the spot of the concealed loot, he sat the girl down on a rock where she could supervise his efforts. Mr. Mahoney set to work, digging as best he might. At last it seemed that his exertions were to be rewarded. His shovel struck something hard, and upon further excavation a great iron-bound chest came into view. No sooner had the top of the chest appeared at the bottom of the pit than Paddy heard a roar like thunder. This earth-shaking sound was quickly followed by a terrified scream from his distraught daughter. Paddy looked up in time to see a raging bull rushing out from the bush and heading straight for his daughter on the rock. The bull charged, tail erect and horns lowered. Noble father that he was, Paddy forsook both the relative safety of the pit and the lure of the gold. Shovel raised, he charged the bull, ready to strike. As Paddy ran for the bull, it suddenly vanished completely. When he returned to the pit, the chest had vanished as well. When the man looked around, he saw at some distance from shore a small boat rowed by a solitary figure. The figure was described as a huge black man, and in the stern of the stranger's boat was a large iron-bound chest. The stranger rowed off into the distance, and was never seen in St. Mary's Bay again. And what about our hero, the brave Paddy Mahoney? Well, it seems he got neither the treasure nor an explanation for the stranger's amazing transformation. Such is life. I'm storyteller and folklorist Dale Jarvis with the story of Paddy Mahoney's Gold from my book Haunted Shores, True Ghost Stories of Newfoundland and Labrador, published by Flanker Press. So that's it for me this week. If you didn't check out my announcement from last week, I'm changing the format of the podcast slightly. Um, I'm going to be releasing episodes every two weeks, just so I have more time to work on episodes, and I don't feel like I'm being rushed. I did a real quick audio on why I'm making this change, so if you want to go back, you can listen to that. Check out the site for links of Dale's books at newfoundpod.com. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at newfoundpod. 
Please subscribe and leave me a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And I'll be back in two weeks with the story of a famous and proud Newfoundlander. Talk to you then.